Welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, the feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and joining me is my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Meng. Today, we'll be discussing the pressing issue of the global refugee crisis and how data is playing a crucial role in addressing it. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, a staggering 108 million people were displaced from their homes by the end of 2022 due to various reasons such as persecution, conflict, human violence, and human rights violations. To shed light on this topic, we have special guest Seema Iyer, the Senior Director of The Hive, USA for United Nations Refugee Agency's Innovation Lab, that's responsible for bringing data science, machine learning, and new technologies into the organization's operations to enhance fundraising for refugees. During our conversation, we will explore the types of data that have been gathered on refugees and the challenges that organizations face in utilizing this data to streamline their efforts. Furthermore, we will delve into the role of generative AI in aiding the cause and how it's contributing to finding the solutions. Join us to learn all of this and more on this month's insightful episode of the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Well, Seema, thank you so much for being here. I just, I want to sort of dive right in with... um, Probably the most basic question in data science is what kind of data are we using to help the refugee crisis? What data is being collected and what data do you need? Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, There's two throughputs to answering that question. One is looking at the point of the distress. So the refugees themselves, when a crisis occurs, what the impetus is that causes somebody to potentially have to flee in the middle of the night. That is violence, war, persecution, and increasingly, unfortunately, climate change around the world as as different kinds of weather events are occurring that cause people to flee and potentially not return, right? Not just a regular disaster. So that's one end of the kinds of data that we need to really understand the problem. And this is a lot of the work that UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Refugee Agency, does directly. Um, But we can use some of that data to think about the full journey, you know, as people potentially are leaving, where are they going? Uh, What are the host countries doing? Is that a temporary situation or a permanent resettlement? Or are people even repatriating back? And then on the other end, thinking about raising awareness in the United States about the problem uh, to the kinds of people that would be most interested in learning about it and helping. Uh, Helping typically means through money uh, and other financial resources, but helping in so many other ways, like, you know, communicating about the, the issue and the problem, storytelling, thinking about how technology and whatever you might have that might not be monetary, but in-kind donations that you might be able to do to support people as they're experiencing this um, you know, tragedy in their lives. So there's a throughput to me, one on the unfortunate origin of the problem, and then on the other side, thinking about how do we raise awareness on, on our end using data science along the entire spectrum. Well, thank you. Um- a few years ago, we uh, HDSR and IOM we actually 
together uh, organize a joint you know symposium and one of the topics there is really about misinformation disinformation and so the idea here is obviously uh you know data that being used by good actors as well as bad actors and so how the data has been used you know by the bad actors to in some sense hurt these refugees we heard during the Syrian refugee crisis their data being used to target these refugees I think misinformation and disinformation is not necessarily new. We've probably had that since the beginning of time. The big change now is the amplification of misinformation and the spread and dissemination and the kind of platforms that you can disseminate misinformation much faster and guise that misinformation as potentially real information. So that is the biggest problem, you know, the speed that social media can play. And on the one hand, the social media becomes a lifeline when you are fleeing and maybe the only thing you have is your phone and that's the way to get access in a secure and anonymized way. Uh, your phone may not be a great way for you to communicate anymore. And so these other kind of platforms are the way that people on the move might be trying to access information. And unfortunately, you know, they're not terribly regulated. <laughs> mm -hmm. From the ground, you know, almost anybody can kind of say anything and there isn't many guardrails. So part of uh, the work that I know many organizations are trying to do is attempt to get in front of that potential dissemination of, of bad information and create safer platforms for refugees to access information. A follow-up question on that is broadly this for both the, you know, good data, bad data. Generally, collecting data is not easy, uh, particularly collecting good quality data. And I would imagine in this space, in the in the space of refugees, you probably have, you know, organizations or even countries may or may not, you want to have that data. So the question for you is, what are the particular challenges in your work in terms of, you know, ensure the data is of good quality? And how do you deal with this, uh, these problems? And that'd be something, you know, quite interesting. To know. I think in today's world, we have to take a very broad view of what data even is. Mm -hmm. um, any way that you can get some read on some situation, to me, becomes uh, information and data that we could potentially use. And they come in a variety of different sources, right? Sometimes it's a tweet or sometimes it's a um, actual data set. Maybe sometimes it's a government-based uh, collection of information. Sometimes it's a census, if you're lucky, an actual census. And so to think very broadly about this idea of sensing what's happening, having a kind of ear to the ground, using a broad range of data is what I like to think of information. Because in the end, we're trying to use data to address a situation or understand a problem. And the data can come at us in many different ways. So when we think about poor quality data, in some ways, it maybe is in our imagination, right? How creative can we be with whatever information we might be getting any kind of access to? And how can we convert that into some type of sense making? Because that's what we're really after. And really thinking about what kind of modeling we might be able to do based on whatever information we get. So I always say that all data is messy. <laughs> all data is messy. Um, our job as data scientists is to really wrangle that data into some way that we can analyze it. Um, and those are the kind of skills that I think as a 21st century skill is to take 
again, a very broad view of what data might even look like and creating some um, algorithms and creating some rules and assumptions so that you can convert that information that's just coming at us um, into some type of sense making. So even though, you know, UNHCR at the moment when somebody comes into a refugee camp, they attempt to try and get the registration of that refugee. They don't always know what happens to that refugee if they don't remain in the camp. Um, they don't know where they might have gone. And so they are using different ways of understanding, not necessarily for a tracking purpose, but to see, did an integration program actually work? You know, if they connected them to a job, did that actually create a sustainable livelihood for them in the future? Um, so really thinking about accessing information wherever you can get it, and maybe really thinking broadly about how that information can get you what you're looking for, which is some understanding of what is happening on the ground. And I think that might be something useful for people to think about, you know, even if you hear one story um, mm -hmm. of a terrible situation, do we really need more stories? Uh, maybe that one story is sufficient to act on it, right? To actually potentially help somebody or change something. I'm not saying that one story is always the way I want to go. I'd love to have more data, but sometimes if that's the best you can do, I would take that over nothing, right? <laughs> I see. Uh, let me just uh, follow up very quickly on that because one common problem in data analysis, as you know, is we worry about the data that are not representative of what the situations are, right? And and but you just said something really quite quite important in, in the situation here. Uh, is any indications, uh, you know, probably is cause for action, right? Not just waiting for lots of data. But do you particularly run into problems like where you don't have data are the places you really probably need some more help? Whatever the more terrible situations is where you have the most difficult to get data. Do you run into that kind of issue? Yeah. So, I mean, it, again, thinking very broadly about what data could be, I would always love more data. Um, and setting up systems where data collection is not a burden to the people that are on the ground is really at the root of what you know good data science and good systems and data systems could look like, right? At the moment of intake, when you actually have somebody for five minutes, uh, if you're lucky, if you have five minutes, really grabbing as much good information as potentially possible to answer as many questions as you can, you know, that's the moment to do it. But you also don't want to overburden the person answering all these questions. So making sure you don't ask, uh, you know, superfluous questions and solicit information that you won't need. So that's another kind of opportunity to really think about the system and the moment where some data might be collected can you make that a better experience, not only for the person, you know, giving data, but also so that you can answer your question. So really thinking about the piping, you know, the plumbing of data collection and where you might have some influence to collect data. I mean, in a best case scenario, you have a chance to collect what we call primary data, where you might individually go and talk to refugees or talk to anybody along this pathway, you know, maybe somebody who's already um, received asylum in a different country. Um, but uh, while those are a, a very amazing data sets for, for other people, not only just the people that primarily are collecting it, those are getting really hard and harder uh, to collect now as people you know, have a lot of interview fatigue and survey fatigue. Um, so I think we do also have to think very creatively along the entire pipeline of data potential collection 
of where we might try to access information. Um, and that maybe is kind of a not so new, but maybe a new place where students can really think through and, and other people can think through, how can you help the whole system of understanding by collecting critical data where you might have a moment to be able to do that? Seema, I, I remember I was with another group in, um, I was in Ecuador, and um, it was mostly people coming from Venezuela through Ecuador. You know, a lot of these people were migrants, and so they didn't have a refugee camp to go to. So mm-hmm. the data that was being collected was literally volunteers or, or people who worked at the organization along the main highway, stopping groups, giving them backpacks of supplies, and sort of in return, the migrants would fill out a little survey on the iPad. And I couldn't help but think that there would be a better way or that there could be some AI-enabled way to do a better job of collecting this data. So do you see, you know, how do you really see AI, not necessarily just in that case, but in any way, really changing the game for the refugee crisis? Are there are there certain use cases that you see for that? Oh, 100%. You know, um, it, along that journey, I'm sure people hear a lot of you know, conversations and stories and things like that. Imagine if we could use AI to convert those conversations into data, um, which in some ways is what social media is attempting to kind of help us do. Like we hear these kind of snippets of conversations in social media, but imagine if you could use AI to really put together a data set about experiences for people that they don't even have to stop, uh, but we could actually collect those audio experiences and turn that into data. I think that's a really exciting use of generative AI in the future. To follow up on that, you know, we knew that you just had the uh, uh, Innovate for Refugee Forum, right, to learn about and engage with the latest innovation technology and data science to address needs of, for refugees and focusing on uh, digital and the legal aspect. Uh, can you tell us what you learned there? What what are the topics? Yeah, this seems like a really interesting and uh, any information you can share, that'd be terrific. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to talk about it. It was a, a great day. Um, I oversee what's called the Hive Data Science Innovation Lab at USA for UNHCR. And one of the things that we recognized is that the the Hive itself is a, I guess, a tractor of a variety of different people that are interested in using data and technology to support refugees along that entire throughput, right, from from origin to potentially awareness on the other end. So the question was, how can we at the Hive bring all the people that are interested into the space into a place where, you know, multi-sector actors can actually get something out of it? Normally, when you have technologists in the same room as UNHCR staff, as the same room as a foundation or in the same room as refugees' voices themselves, it could become a cacophony of misunderstanding and you don't really get anything out of it. So we wanted to create a way of learning across different perspectives. So people that are experts in technology and people who are experts in addressing the needs of refugees coming together to kind of share, both share problems, but also think through potential solutions. So this year we focused on the protection of refugees from a legal and digital sense. So things like misinformation and, and, and human rights obviously came up a lot during the conversations. And we enabled um, panels to think through, okay, who's got the problem? So we had, for example, UNHCR Division of International Protection, who is on the ground uh, you know, helping refugees right now understand their rights 
And then we also had pro bono lawyers thinking about what their experience is as somebody who wants to help um, and the bottlenecks that they face. In, in our case, we were specifically looking at citation, automated citations. Um, you know, the longer it takes them to do this kind of background research, the fewer refugees they can help on the other end. And so is there a machine learning or artificial intelligence way to help them with their case law automation and citation work so that they could basically help more refugees? And I think what was awesome about the experience, and this actually goes back to, I have a very long experience in this before I came to USA for UNHCR, to really bringing people together who have a disparate uh, perspective on the same problem and normally don't have the opportunity to kind of take a moment and learn from each other in a way that's mutually beneficial. <laughs> Sometimes you might just get one side of that or the other side of that where it's kind of over the head of, of you know, you don't know anything about technology. Sitting around talking about generative AI is pretty daunting and, and creates a barrier. And so on the one hand, we wanted to make sure that we were talking across um, sectors, but then also not in a way that was, you know, we didn't want to dumb anything down. It was very specific that we um, enabled kind of real conversations with people who have uh, real technical skills and enable them to kind of talk across lines. So one of our keynote speakers said it much more eloquently than I do. Her name is Malika Sadasar from YouTube, heads up uh, Global Human Rights for YouTube. And she said, you know, where the river and the ocean meet is the most fertile place for innovative, um, uh, innovative thinking. And that is what we hope Innovate for Refugees is, is a place for technologists and people who are on the ground helping refugees come together and really kind of see each other's perspectives and hone in on potential solutions. I can't help but follow up with the following question because the refugee problem by nature, by definition, it's, a, it's an international problem. So what I want to uh, get a sense is that during this forum, I assume that these peoples are coming from, do they come from multiple countries? I want to see, I, I want to see how these technologies, the use of innovations, uh, the commonality across different countries or some countries doing better. Because I assume when you talk about legal aspects, even the digital aspect, there are different cultures that have different backgrounds, different takes on those things. That how do you managing kind of a this uh, very international, you know, collaboration and to, get the best out of it. Yeah, so two things. We specifically hosted the event during the week that the UN General Assembly is in session. So okay. we knew that people would be flying in that week anyway, and that we could essentially kind of capture a few hours of their time to join us. The other thing that we did um, was really ask people, ask people what do they want to learn about? On a day like this, we asked um, our multi-country office in Washington of UNHCR, and they were really fantastic thought partners and thinking about, well, here are the real problems, and here's the kind of things that I would love to learn. We also asked technologists, what do they want to learn? Uh, we have a relationship with Microsoft Humanitarian Action for AI, AI for Humanitarian Action. Ask them the same thing. We have a Hive advisory board. Uh, which gratefully Liberty is uh, joining us on, and we asked them what they would want to learn from. And so thinking about, you know, asking people what they wanted to learn really helped us curate a good uh, overview of exactly what you're asking. And one of the things that we, you know, specifically honed in on is a repository of case law 
that UNHCR Division of International Protection manages. It's called Ref World, Refugee World, but it's called Ref World. And it is a repository of case law where you can imagine natural language processing is a huge benefit to really digging into so many different kinds of international law that might apply very specifically to different refugees because of their country of origin or because of where they're located. And one of the people that came um, because they were interested in this particular work was a lawyer from Australia who was coming to UNGA, uh, UN General Assembly. And he said he came and he stayed for the entire day, which I was grateful for. And DLA Pipers, where they come from, is a donor to UNHCR and provides services, pro bono legal services for the displacement space. And he said, I didn't know anything about Ref World, and I don't know if I was your target audience for this particular event, but I think I am your target audience. I am somebody who has resources to help refugees. They have lawyers who want to help. They would love to be able to help more refugees, and if they could support better integration of technology and the Ref World platform, now that he knows about it, um, that was something that he got personally out of the event. And so to me, that's a win-win right there of getting that international perspective for a specific problem, but it really has you know broader legs than that. I think that brings me to the question of, you know, what do you really see as the next frontier then in sort of how AI can help with the refugee crisis? What's next? What What's your form going to be on next year? Or what, you know, maybe that's a little <laughs> bit too soon to ask that question. But what do you what do you see as the next really big challenge to, to tackle in this space, um, whether it's a use case or an idea? The biggest, uh, I won't, I'll claim up front that I'm probably not an expert in AI personally. I We have used it on our team and I see a lot of the benefit and we got a lot out of the event to learn more about what, what that could mean. But I think the biggest especially with the new kind of generative AI, right? I have seen it find patterns. I have seen it, um, you know, do those kinds of things that we wouldn't be able to naturally do, you know, by ourselves. But generative AI, thinking about how it can create content and summarize content, um, that's a whole different ballgame. And one of the biggest things that I think could come out of this goes back to our conversation about misinformation is this idea of, really communicating in a way that people understand. You know, as a professor, as we uh, all are, sometimes you say the same thing to five different students and only one of them actually understood it the way you said it. So you kind of have to say it again in a different way so that different perspectives can hear what you're saying. And I think generative AI actually has the chance of taking the same bit of information and, you know, creating the written word from it or creating a data visualization from it or creating a picture for it or creating a diagram or creating a video and that different people can actually access the same bit of information using multiple channels in ways that we wouldn't have been able to do before. So you can imagine, for example, in the refugee space, not everything's going to be written down. Not everything can even be, um, you know, disseminated person to person, but if we can, can translate things quicker and we can kind of show videos quicker and we can show audio quicker to meet the kind of needs and learning needs that we know all of us have different learning kind of applications. And if Gen AI could really help that, I think that to me was a huge game changer that I learned from the event. 
of the ways that we can disseminate and communicate in ways, um, you know, beyond maybe the typical report or the typical data viz that requires, uh, you know, some data visualization knowledge. Not to say that I don't love my data viz uh, staff, because I do, but if we can help disseminate that faster, I think that would be great. That is a really great point. And you mentioned, you know, as professors, we all try and find the ways to be more effective. And often, you know, I'd be pretty lucky that you talk to five people that you, students, you actually got to one of them understand, right? Sometimes you don't even get that. So seriously, I think what you mentioned in the forum about this better communication, you know, uh, helping people to better understand situations, that's incredible. How much discussion there was kind of focusing on the education aspect? Because I assume in this great space uh, now, both the technology and the challenges. I think the best way to combat any future problem is to have more well-trained people have equipped with this you know, new technology, but also better understanding of the complexity of the problems in the refugee space. So how do we train the future generations to be a better force, workforce for this area? Yeah. Actually, one of the questions in the room was, is this going to you know, eliminate jobs, <laughs> which was a tough <laughs> question, which was a tough question no. to answer. Uh, and so the answer, yes, is no, it's not necessarily going to eliminate a job. It's going to change the nature of that job for sure. So anytime we do any kind of data analysis, no matter what the technique that we use, there's some type of data going in and there's some type of data coming out or output coming, which you have to interpret. And I think the next generation of AI specialists, that aspect is not going to change. But what is going into a machine learning model or what is going into a generative AI you know, chatbot, you still have to curate that. You still have to know what your data sources are, no matter what kind of other tool you might be massaging it through. And Absolutely. then interpreting the output is always going to be something that we're going to need. But that interpretation is going to change as the tools are outputting different things. So I've heard things like, you know, generative AI, making sure that you attempt to curate and control the input into your generative AI. Don't have it open to the entire internet. Maybe that's not a great source of information because there are some things on the internet that are actually misinformation and wrong. So you want to attempt to try and curate that. But on the other end, Generative AI is not a human, so you want to make sure that what comes out is accurate. It might be logical, but I've heard that it might not be factual, right? And so making sure that you fact check, which may be a different kind of skill than you had in the past or a different aspect of a job that you might have had in the past. So I don't think the job is necessarily going to change. Humans are still going to be a part of the entire process, but you know, the output, there's going to be more of it with generative AI that we've ever seen and being able to be discerning and that it's actually accurate, I think is something that we do need to help our students better understand. Actually, uh, before I turn to Liberty for the magical one question, I can't help to add one more question for you. Um, in terms of creating new jobs, right? Now we know because of the chat GPT, the generative AI, uh, one fast growing, uh, you know, area is called a prompt engineer right you how do you ask the question how, how do you communicate ask the question. right because that's become so important so i'm curious like during your forum uh, is there any particular discussions about the prompt engineer in this space you know how do you communicate with the machine to get what you want is is there a particular challenge or particular you know tips 
Yeah, no, that was a huge component of what we were talking about because right now the prompt engineer are the pro bono lawyers. <laughs> They're the I ones see. that are having to do it right now. And so getting in the heads of these pro bono lawyers to essentially automate some of the stuff that they might have been doing in the past was a part of the project. And how useful was it to learn about the way that a lawyer thinks about doing background research and how to cite uh, case law that might have occurred? And that became a key component to making sure that it was even a good outcome. So the user in our case happened to be pro bono lawyers, but if they didn't see that the output was accurate according to the way that they would have done it themselves, that was a, a great kind of outcome for that. And I think the law itself, like international law, state law, local law, in some ways is code, right? It's very much code. It's a, it's a logic around the law. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And analyzing law, there's a lot of great, I think, applications. I heard one that was very interesting using it from an advocacy point of view and using generative AI across a bunch of different laws in California to figure out if I'm an affordable housing expert or an affordable housing advocate or a refugee advocate, which of these laws actually are the kinds of things that I want to advocate for. Uh, but if I'm not a lawyer, how am I going to read through all of those laws and asking generative AI to help you think through which laws you want to support or which laws you want to lobby for? Um, that was fascinating to think about kind of where, even with respect to the law, um, generative AI could help with. So we we honed in on a specific need for refugees, which was legal and digital protection. But to Liberty's point, next year, we could pick housing, or we could pick livelihoods, or we could pick education, uh, as you already mentioned. And there's no dearth, unfortunately, of needs of refugees. But the more we can help technologists understand what those very specific needs are, the more they can deploy their skills in a way that's relevant. Well, I feel like I, I have a thousand more questions I could ask, but we inevitably always have to wrap this up. So we always do a, a magic wand question at the end. So this is if you could wave your magic wand, what would the answer be? So not to put you on the spot, I can see your face is like, oh my God. Um, but if you could ma wave your magic wand to have one set, magically one perfect set of data that you could have to help the refugee crisis, what would it be? I would probably put it on the awareness side of this work. I think a lot of people are unaware of the plight of people around the world and how directly related it could be to your lives. Um, one of the things that happened during the event and actually has happened since I've taken this job, and even if I think of my own family, we're not so far removed from a refugee family, uh, none of us. Um, it could be, you know, by the grace of God that that any one of us could be in this situation all of a sudden. And so if there was a perfect data set would be how could we use communication and generative AI to really help people empathize, uh, sympathize and kind of put themselves in the shoes of refugees? That would be the best data set that I can think of based on, you know, who you are really thinking deeply about your own family history. Like I said, none of us are too far removed from a situation where this could have been us. So that would be my magic wand data set. 
That's a really terrific answer. I think in general, I feel like for our society, for any society, if we all can put ourselves in other people's shoes as much as possible, we'll be much better society. Because these days we just don't think that way. And、uh, thanks for reminding us. None of us is that remote from you know these situations that we don't like to get into it. So I really want to thank you、uh, on behalf of Harvard Data Science Review and the entire team、uh, for first for coming、uh, talk to us, but most importantly. For the great work you're doing for our society, thank you. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our executive producer Rebecca McLeod and producers Tina Toby Mack and Ariane Winfrank. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review: Everything Data Science and Data Science for Everyone.